Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, continuing with our study. Last week we looked at uh, the church at Ephesus. This evening we'll look at the church at Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So when you find your place, if you're able, it stands to honor the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2. In verse number 8, Revelation chapter 2, verse number 8, the word of God says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this night and for your word. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you bless your word. Lord, let it be used to encourage us and, uh, Lord, comfort us. Um, And, Father, if uh, there is one here uh, that might not know you, Father, I pray that this day would be their day of salvation. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The church at Smyrna could also be called the persecuted church. I've titled this message, The Poor Rich Church. This church here flies in the face of everything that televangelists say God loves. It's a poor church, but yet he calls them rich. It's persecuted by those without. Much could be said about persecution. You can go to the bookstore and you can read, or, or you can check out, buy, go to the library and check out uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you can read that book from cover to cover, and it is full of Christians that have given their lives for the cause of Christ. Jesus said, in this life, you'll have persecutions. He promised You will have tribulations and you will have trials come your way. And that's what this church here faced. It faced many uh, trials and many tribulations. It faced many persecutions. And Jesus is sending this letter to this church to comfort her. Much could be said about churches today is... We move forward into the future. The Bible speaks about in the end times. The love of many will grow, will wax worse and worse or or get worse and worse. We're not coming into a time as some post-millennialists will teach and and say that we'll come into a time where where it's all going to be great and wonderful before the second coming of Christ. No, the Bible says that we're coming to a time when it's going to get worse and worse before the second coming. Of Christ. So we might be able to find some words of comfort in this passage. So let us look and see how the Lord addresses the church at Smyrna this evening. 
He addresses him. He addresses the church like he does all the other churches in his uh, in these chapters two and three. And he addresses them to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And remember, I just told you how I believe that the angel is a reference to the messenger of the church, or uh, we would say the pastor of the church that delivers the message of God faithfully on a uh, weekly basis. And unto the angel, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, he says, "Right." And now he introduces them. So as we look at our outline, this is the character of Christ. We see his character revealed in the first words of the introduction to the letters to these churches. It says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And when he addresses these churches, we need to remember each time, I'll be refreshing your memory every time we go through. As he addresses these churches, he addresses them uh, dealing with his character, but he addresses them in a way that would help them in their present circumstance. And the way that he addresses them now is he says, I am the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And so think about this. Here we have a church that is persecuted and is going to go through persecution and is going to go through some really intense persecution uh, in the near future. And as he addresses them, he says, I am the first and the last. Now, when he says, I am the first and the last, this is a simple way that these churches would know because they have been instructed in the uh, Old Testament scriptures. They have been instructed by um, uh, the likes of possibly Paul. Some uh, commentators believe that the uh, church at Smyrna might have been uh, founded during Paul's third missionary journey. And so they would know some old these Old Testament allusions that are being made. And so when Jesus makes reference to being the first and the last, he's really referencing uh, one passage particular in Isaiah when God is speaking. And he says, Thus saith the Lord, Isaiah 44, 6. He says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Look at how he addresses him. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Let me just stop right here and say this. I've heard some people say that Paul, they they criticize the uh, New Testament. And what they do is they say that Paul and some of the other apostles really made Jesus out to be something he never claimed to be. And so they try and say that Jesus never once claimed to be God. They say he claimed to be a good teacher. They say he claimed to be a rabbi. But they say he never once claimed to be God. Can I say this? Here's a passage where Jesus Christ is claiming that he is God. And he is God. And so what further uh, encouragement would you need? As a church that is enduring persecution, that is enduring trial, uh, on the brink of death, to know that the almighty God of the heavens, the creator of the heavens and the universe, has spoken directly to you. Listen, we as a church in the 21st century, we should be excited that God took time out of his oh-so-busy schedule to address a small congregation like us. He addressed not just a small congregation like us, but he addressed churches all across the world when he gave us his word. 
And so he has spoken. We're doing a study on Wednesday nights about uh, doctrine. And one of the things we, we've learned is that is that God is not just some impersonal force, but that he desires to have fellowship with his creation. Amen. And so he has given us his word. He has spoken to us. And he is speaking to this church that is in the midst of hard persecution. And then he goes on and says, not only is he the first and the last, but look at this. He says, which was dead and is alive. He's making reference now to his crucifixion. Where he came to this earth. He came to this earth as a born of a woman, broken flesh. Remember, Jesus Christ is God in flesh. And he came to this earth, robed in that flesh, for a specific reason. He came robed in a mortal body so that he could die for sinners such as you and I. He died on the cross. So it says that he was dead. But then, he says, is alive. Notice the tenses in the words, which was dead and is alive. That can be said today, 2,000 years later. He was dead, but now, at this present moment, he is alive. Why? Because he is God in flesh. He is God himself that came to this earth. And he died on the cross and he lives again and lives forevermore. And so he's writing to these this church and he is encouraging this church as enduring persecution. And it's almost as if he's saying, look, whatever persecution and whatever trial and whatever circumstance you're going through, I've been there. And look, not only is he saying that he's been there, he says, I've defeated it. Amen? He has defeated death. Uh, look. And look what he tells us in in John chapter number 11. In John chapter 11 and verses 25 and 26. He says, Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die Believest thou this? Not only is he alive, but he's saying that if we have put our faith in him, we will live too. Though we will die, yet we will live. Jesus Christ has overcome all trials, all tribulation, all temptation. He's even overcome death. And because he has overcome, we as believers in him have overcome all these as well. And so this is how he addresses the church. He says, this is who I am. And because you are my children, because you are my church, 
you can overcome as well. That's his character. And then, after he gets done revealing his character to them, he, he gives them his commendation. He commends them in verse number 9. He says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say there are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's his commendation. And this is, I think there's one other letter where he gives no condemnation. This, but he doesn't condemn them. There's nothing that he has to condemn them. They're being faithful to him. So he says, I know thy works. Once again, that word know speaks of a complete knowledge. And the word works is just a general term of the stuff that they, they've done and will do. So he's, he's saying, I know from the beginning of the end, the insides and the outs about what you've done and, and what you're going through. Isn't it great to know that Jesus Christ himself knows the things that we go through, what gets us in the positions that we're in. And he's saying, I know what you're going through. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know how they've treated you. The word tribulation speaks of uh, uh, pressure. It speaks of being, being pressed down. And there's three reasons that they would be pressured or be going through tribulation. Number one, this church was a part of the Roman Empire. And so they would be receiving pressure from the government. And that pressure from the government would be coming because, well, a little bit of information about Rome. Roman Caesars or emperors, whatever you want to call them, they viewed themselves and made others view them as gods and so they had these all these different gods out there and really there were greek gods they just gave them roman names and then they would take all these greek gods but then they would also each time a, a new caesar would come up they would lay that caesar as a god and that caesar would demand that they worship him new caesars would rise up and fall and each time, they would worship them as gods. Christians, on the other hand, recognize that there's only one true God. And they weren't going to bow their knee to anybody but that one true God, and that is Jesus Christ. There's no other king that we should be worshiping than Jesus Christ. And so they bow their knee not to Caesar, but to Christ. So Rome, the government would come in, much like with uh, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they would refuse to bow down and worship the king's idol. The Roman government would come in, and they would persecute, and they would pressure these people into worshiping Caesar, but they would refuse. So there was pressure from the government, but then there would be pressure from the citizens as well. As I mentioned, Rome being a pagan nation, they had many different gods that they would worship. They would worship the, uh, a god of war. They would worship a god of war, a uh, god of air. They had all these different gods out there. And so, and with these different gods would come different ceremonies, different rituals. And the Christian population would have nothing to do with them. 
And so they were looked down upon. They were they were seen as second-class citizens because they didn't participate in the things that the uh, secular society was participating in. But not just that, though. There would be another form of pressure coming from the Jewish population. Uh, Domitian, who would be who was uh, is believed to be the one ruling at the time of the Book of Revelation, if it was written in AD 90. Um, he, he put out uh, some edicts, and, and, and the Jews were uh, exempt from participating in these things. And the Jews pushed hard to force the Christians into doing these different things that the Roman government had to do, uh, had them to do. And so the Jews would force persecution upon them, and it all stemmed from their Hatred of Christ. The Jews would persecute and ridicule and try them because of the Christian's devotion to Jesus Christ. And so that's why we have in our text, he says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou rich. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say there are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Pretty harsh words. But what is he saying when he says that they say they're Jews, but they're not? Is he saying that that they're not ethnic Jews? Now, I believe that he was speaking of ethnic Jews. But remember what Paul said, I believe it was in the book of Galatians, when he said, not all that are the children of Abraham are the children of Abraham. In other words, he's saying, you're not a Jew by your heritage. You're not a Jew by your bloodline. He says, you're truly Jewish. You're truly an Israelite, so to speak, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so these Jews, much like in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that persecuted the church, that persecuted Christians and the people of God, they too were revealing that just because they had a name of Jew... And just because they had the name of, quote, God's people, that they were really instruments of Satan. Jesus even told the religious rulers, you are of your father, the devil. And so he commends them. He says, you have faced tribulation. So much tribulation is what's believed that has made them poor. All this persecution has driven you to poverty. But he gives them this encouragement. Though you say you're poor, you've lost all your precious material things. He says you're rich. As I think about that, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 3. When Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says about God, he says, Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Yeah. You see, what, what we need to realize today is that just because we don't might not have a, a lot of things doesn't mean that God is against us. Don't give in to the false teachings of the televangelist on TV. 
When they say that if you're sick, it's because you've lost your faith somewhere and, and God is punishing you for that. Or when they say that, that if, if you're poor, that it's because of some lack of faith in your life. And, and, and God doesn't want you to be poor. He, he wants you to be rich and, and wealthy and, and all these other things. But yet, uh, so, so if something is wrong in your life that you aren't experiencing that, something is wrong with you and you need to repent. Folks, there's been a lot of people that have been turned away from the church because they have been taught uh, over and over again that because of their present circumstance, God must not be happy with them. Here's a church that has lost everything. They're destitute. That's what their poor, that word poor means. Some people believe, oh man, I'm broke. And they go to the uh, to their bank account, they, they swipe that ATM machine, and, the, and they look, and they say, I only got $100 in the bank. I'm broke. I've only got $10 in the bank. I'm broke. No, listen. When the word, you see the word poverty here, it's not speaking of just having a few. It's speaking of having absolutely nothing. This church here has absolutely nothing. But Jesus is writing to them and saying, though you might not have the things that the world thinks you need, he says, you're rich beyond measure. That's not the way the world sees things, though. We've got churches today that, that boast of a huge bank account. I've heard of one church that had, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. You know what they did with it? I'll tell you, absolutely nothing. That's what they call the quote, rainy day fund. I'll tell you what, I wish I had a rainy day fund of a, several hundred thousand dollars. The work, the money that we bring in here, listen, God forbid if it sits up in a storehouse. It should be used for the furtherance of the gospel of Christ. Some churches think that just because they have a big bank account, they can uh, put on big performances and big shows that they think that, that God is really blessing. And God may be blessing, but you know what? We can experience just as much of the blessings of God in a small little country church as the big city megachurch can. Why? Because it's not about our money. It's about our God. And if you're more concerned about the money... You know who your God is. We ought to be more concerned about Jesus Christ and doing his work than any other thing. Because it's him that makes us rich. And when he makes us rich, he makes us rich in any way that he sees fit. Whether it's monetary or through spiritual blessings in heavenly places. This type of persecution still goes on. Today, by the way, the government tries to come in and tell us how we're to worship and practice our faith. Non-Christians that we live around persecute and revile us for our refusal to participate in certain worldly affairs. And then we even have people that will stand and run us down that call themselves Christians 
but yet want to stand against us because of maybe something that we say or do during maybe worship or how we might pray. I've heard people make fun of the way other people pray so many times it ain't funny. And by the way, if you want to shout and say amen, have at it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> and and understands why. Y'all don't, so just <laughs> leave it at that. His character, his commendation. He's he's recognizing that though this was a, uh, a poor church, he, he's telling them, you, you've done a good work. Isn't it, wouldn't it, isn't it great? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great that if, if Jesus was to come to us and say, look, I know it's Sunday night, the, the numbers are down, but look. Keep up what you're doing. You're being faithful. You're preaching the word. You're getting the gospel message out there. That's what truly matters. Next we see his command. Verse number 10. He says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Don't fear. He says that the, there's people that's coming in. Uh, in fact, he even uh, uses the phrase, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. The devil's going to use these uh, people around the Roman government and whoever else he can, can uh, to bring suffrage upon them. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that she may be tried. You're going to be tried. You're going to be cast into prison to, to try your faith. I've spoken of John Bunyan. I got that right. Paul Bunyan's the lumberjack. John Bunyan's the Puritan preacher. John Bunyan was a man that was a faithful preacher of the Word of God. Only thing is, the area that he was preaching in it was against the law for him to preach. So what they did, they took him and they cast him into prison. Each day, for I don't know how many years, they tried to get him to recant his faith in Christ. If you just recant Jesus, you're free to go. On top of that, not only was his captors trying to force him to recant, his wife and children would come. Honey, Daddy, will you just tell him you don't believe so that you can get out of here? Imagine that day after day after day for several years you've got your captors trying to force you to recant and you've got your wife and your children saying please just, just stop preaching 
It'll be okay, and you'll get to come home. You know, I often think about that. Whenever I, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in, in June and was gone for a few days, and, um, there's maybe once or twice a year that I'll take a trip with a, a friend of mine to, uh, and we'll be gone for a couple of days. And um, I always call Anna and the kids to, to check on them and, and talk to them. I could imagine, I couldn't imagine being locked up not being able to to actually physically reach out and touch my children or my wife. And the only thing I would have to do is say, all right, I'll quit preaching. You'll never hear me mention the name of Jesus ever again. That had to be tough on John Bunyan. It says here, this church, they're going to be cast into prison to be tried in their faith. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was actually the pastor at the church of Smyrna. I think it was 86 years old, I believe. A little fuzzy on numbers. The Roman government came in this evening. He had him stop at the door. He said, don't worry, I'm going to come with you. He said, let me just finish my meal. He even offered them some food too. So they sat down, they let him finish his meal, let him gather up his stuff, and they took him to the prison where he would be tried and then sentenced to death by burning. And he knew this was coming. So they bring him out put him to the stake, got all the straw around him, and they've got the torch in his hand. They say, one more opportunity. We'll give you one more chance to recant Jesus, deny him, and you can be set free. And he says this, 86 years I've served him. And he's done me no wrong. Why now should I deny my Savior which bought me? And with those final words, they let those straw, that straw. And after a time of burning, he died. Notice what he says. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. 
Some say that 10 is representative of a short period of time. Others say it's a literal 10 days. I'll let you decide. I believe it's a literal 10 days. He says, and Jesus says this, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. You know what that tells me? This church at Smyrna, the ones that were going to be tried and cast into prison, Jesus is telling them, you're going to your final death. You're going to death when you leave your house and you go into prison. He says, but be faithful. Don't deny me. Just as Polycarp was knowingly going to his death, he knew that he could not deny Jesus Christ. And so he was faithful unto death. And Jesus is encouraging this church here. He says, be faithful. Look at me, he says. I was dead, but I'm alive evermore. Remember my words in John chapter 11. Though you may, be, though you may die... Yet you will live because I am the resurrection and I am the life. Be faithful in death and I will give thee the crown of life. Finally, he gives his counsel in verse number 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now he's speaking individually now. He that hath an ear. The churches are made up of a group of people. Now he's speaking to each one individually. If you hear what I'm saying, he says, He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Each person in that church, he speaks to him and he says, you that overcome. Who are the overcomers? The Bible says we are overcomers in Jesus Christ. He says you shall not be hurt of the second death. What is the second death? Revelation chapter 20 verse number 14 tells us. It says in verse 14. And death and hell were cast in a lake of fire. He says... This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is that second death. Anna and I, when we were in, living in Mobile, we um, went to a church out there, Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. The pastor there, Dr. Steve Lawson, would always make this statement. If I can get it right, he would always, I would always hear him say, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll die once. Amen. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. He says, you're mine. You've been saved. You've been born again. That's the second birth. And because you're, you've been born again, you were born once and then you were born again, you'll only die this one time. You'll never taste of that second death.
that second death brings wrath, turmoil. The Bible says it's the thirst is never quenched, the worm does not die. So you die twice, that's what you face. But if you only die once, you leave this earthly body and you enter into the presence of the eternal kingdom of God. You live forevermore being able to be face to face with your Lord Jesus Christ. Singing praises, glory, hallelujah to the Lamb of God for all eternity. What more could you ask for? To deny Jesus is to lose everything. But to embrace Him and be faithful to Him unto death, you gain it all. So to the church at Smyrna, He writes these encouraging words. You're going to face persecution. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison and you will die. But be faithful. Be faithful. Don't turn your back. Because I have a crown of life laid up for you in heaven. And if you face that second death, you will not get it. But because you are overcomers through me, you will receive this crown of life. And that is a promise not just to the church at Smyrna. But it's a promise to us here. If we're faithful to him, he'll be faithful to us and give us a crown of life as well. So let's stand to our feet as we have our final hymn. How the message has affected you tonight, please respond accordingly. Pray with me. Father, thank you for joining us for our broadcast. I hope you'll join us again next time with Rick Clark Ministries.